Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Vass here with this week's How To Academy podcast, the weekly show bringing conversations with the world's biggest thinkers direct to your speakers and earphones. The particle physicist Brian Cox is unrivaled in his ability to convey the sublime wonder of the universe with a turn of phrase. He joined us on a How To Academy live stream a few weeks back to meet Rebecca Rag Sykes. Rebecca is an archaeologist broadcaster and the author of a new book that will make you rethink everything you thought you knew about Neanderthals. It's called Kindred, Neanderthal Love, Life, Death and Art, and it's out now. Without further ado, here are Brian and Rebecca. Thanks for everyone for joining this conversation. I should just say that I, I jumped at the invitation to to do this, to be involved, because I just loved Rebecca's book. If you, you haven't got it, Kindred, you should, maybe you've all bought it, which is why you're here, but <laughs> you haven't. I just think it's a wonderful book because of the way that it merges the, the real hard science, actually, but also this beautifully, almost romantic writing. You were saying, actually, Rebecca, that, that you were in the poetry club at school. You really see it in the writing. But my first question is really, I think one of the hardest things to imagine for anyone is the timescale that we're talking about. When we talk about Neanderthals, um, could you give an outline of, of how long they were here on Earth and, and when they disappeared? And, and, and we'll talk later about if, how, <laughs> how and if they disappeared and to what extent. The timescales that we're talking about. Yeah, well, thanks so much, everyone, for being here. It's really, really great to talk about Neanderthals with so many people. The thing with the time, a lot of people know roughly when they disappear from the fossil record when we stop seeing their bones and their archaeology. And that's around 40,000 years ago, which doesn't sort of seem so old. But in terms of the period of time that they were actually around where we can see anatomically evidence for, um, for the Neanderthal body, and in terms of the culture, that goes back to around 350 to 400,000 years ago. Um, so that sounds like a massive more. But in fact, if you look at the broader scale of human evolution and, and all the different hominins that we know about, it's pretty recent. So you have bipedal hominins, so creatures walking around on two legs three, four million years ago. And the earliest archaeology now is 3.3 million years ago in East Africa. And that's that simple um, sort of bashing of stones, really. It's not sophisticated. But that shows you sort of actually Neanderthals and ourselves are very recent in that broader scale. So we emerge around the same time, around 300,000, 350 sort of different populations in different parts of Africa begin to show features that start looking like us Homo sapiens. So we're actually contemporaries. If you take it right back to the beginning of the Neanderthals and the beginning of us, it's pretty much the same time. Can you just define that term, hominin? Yeah, so hominin basically um, means the, the group of creatures, so apes, fellow apes, we're apes as well, but that are in broad terms within the lineage that's going to lead eventually to us. But I mean, obviously, you take it back six million years, then you've got lots of branches that start with our common ancestor, but they go their own way. But we actually have you know, more than 15 different species going back sort of four um, million years now so what sort of seemed to be 
relatively sparse few decades ago has really started to fill out. And we also see that there was diversity in Africa, but also we're beginning to pick out different species in other parts of uh, Eurasia as well. No, so, so that picture has become a lot more rich and diverse. And just before we focus on Neanderthal, so in terms of species, how many different contemporary species would there have been? I mean, we used to just, we just say, well, there are humans now. And we sort of accept the fact that we're all the same species and that's it. But as you go back in time, uh, what, how does that spread? How does the brand? Yeah, as, well, it's complicated because not, not everybody agrees on the, on the naming and the definitions as well. So that's one issue. But basically you have us. Um, so I'm sort of talking between about 50,000 and 300,000. You would have us, Neanderthals. Denisovans, which are um, what appear to be a more Eastern Eurasian species. This Homo naledi from uh, South Africa, which looks anatomically very primitive, but actually is uh, chronologically quite recent, um, 250,000, something like that. And then you have other things going on in East Asia as well. There's a newly identified one, um, Homo luzonensis, which we don't really know what's going with that. And there's also those ones people probably have heard of what in the media they get called the hobbits. Um, that's Homo floresiensis, which is a very tiny little creature, um, but it does appear to be around pretty late, I think to about 70,000 years ago. So overall it's quite a busy world <laughs> more than we used to believe so, so really yeah if you go back 100,000 years or so it's an unusual time I suppose the last 40,000 years in a sense yes been unusual for us because there's only one species left the homo sapiens yeah this is the only time that it's been like that I would think um, and especially if you go back sort of into the millions of years then the timescales are very large and the fossils we have are relatively few. So, you know, you're picking those out over a million years. But even then, we still see that there is great diversity in form as well. And so I think it's always been a lot more of a, of a busy bush, you know, than just like a single tree leading towards us or anything like that. So, now, And I feel like I'm jumping almost to the end of the conversation in a sense, but it really does... I think the thing that occurs to me is, did we as Homo sapiens have anything to do with this reduction of our great family tree? Or is that too simplistic? It's a terrible coincidence, a lot of people say. But um, I think in terms of whether we had anything to do with the Neanderthals, that's like a complicated question that people have had sort of in their minds for a long time. So there's a lot of possible threads to that answer. But in terms of whether we sort of impacted directly other hominins that's more of an open question because many of those have only been discovered relatively recently so we're not quite sure exactly at what point they disappeared but what we do know is that the chronology for when the earlier homo sapiens um, populations began to disperse out of africa is a lot older as well than we used to believe so the idea used to be that we left Africa and cleared the Neanderthals out straight away somewhere around 40,000 years ago. And that's really changed now. It's more, we've certainly got evidence that people are in the Near East area, well over 100,000, maybe as much as 180. There's been claims for um, a skull in Greece that could be over 200,000 years. That's not entirely certain because it's, it's quite um, sort of fragmentary. But certainly what we do know is that Homo sapiens are in East Asia, in China, 80,000 plus, and in Australia before 65,000 years ago. So the span of time during which we would have met and interacted with other more archaic hominins that had already been in Eurasia for a long time, that has just got much bigger. So the potential for us having been responsible is, you know, is looking a lot bigger than it, than it perhaps once was. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I really like about your book, many things, but one of them is the way that you tell the story of how we can speak with any confidence at all about in quite some detail about the, the Neanderthals anatomically, but also the society and the way that they lived. But, but if we start, maybe it'd be good to give a brief outline of the history from the first discovery, and then the, you know, just to outline the amount of physical evidence and data that we have. 
Yeah, so Neanderthals are essentially, they're the, the hominins that we know best. They were the first hominins that we ever discovered. They were the representatives of other forms of being human or being sort of types of human, of, of hominins. Um, and with the Neanderthals, it's kind of weird because we found them in terms of we recognised them beginning in 1856 um, with a discovery in a, in a German quarry. Um, this was the Feldhofer uh, Neanderthal find. But in fact, there had been previous discoveries, they just were not recognised as such. So the earliest discovery that we know of that turned out to be a Neanderthal later, um, was in 1836 in Belgium. And that was actually accompanied by um, sort of extinct animal species, and it was sealed under um, a flowstone floor in a cave. But it was sort of not convincing. It was difficult because um, the skull was actually a, a child's skull, and Neanderthals, you know, like our children, they don't grow into their, their fully adult form, so it wasn't quite so obvious. But the next one um, was 1848, so only a little bit afterwards. And that was a whole skull that was found in Gibraltar in a quarry to do with the military works on Gibraltar at the time. So that was British-owned uh, territory. And it was, we don't know who found that one, but it was brought to the scientific society that was run by the officers. And it was clearly interesting enough that somebody brought it, it was logged in the minutes as a skull, but they did not recognise quite how odd the skull really looked. And it was kept in the collections, um, but nobody really recognised that until after the German find in 1856. Um, so the Gibraltar find was then noticed by a visiting doctor in 1863 who sort of shipped it over to Britain. So we sort of, you know, there were like three of them suddenly. Um, they all appeared once the German find was recognised for what it was. But it is an interesting question, you know, what, what are people ready to sort of see? You know, that there had been a long, relatively long history of interest and investigation in fossils and in animals and geology in the 18th century and people were aware that there was a possibility for this you know deep deep ancestry for humans but it went against um biblical sort of texts and chronologies and things so that was a a difficult question but people were already imagining it and there was a find um in the 1830s in europe of an ape of a fossil ape so I think that also was, you know, piquing people's interest in the, in the notion. But it still took until the 1850s for the German skull to, to be found in the quarry, to be, to be sent to a local naturalist who then passed it on to an anatomist. And at that point, it sort of had its own legs and, and it took off across, you know, the intellectual community in Europe. But in terms of where our beginnings with them started it's it's 160 years ago essentially they've been with us a long time and that's why in some ways we know them the best because they've had so much attention but also there is just actually a lot of fossil material we have in terms of numbers of fragments we have thousands of them and they represent um, probably somewhere between one and two hundred individual Neanderthals um, they're not all complete skeletons obviously but if for for a fossil sample they're actually really good and and that's why we we can say so much about their about their bodies but it did take longer to sort of get to grips with with their culture and and the things that they made and in fact we didn't even know for many decades whether they actually made any tools so they found the fossils but there were no artefacts that were recognised with them, although there actually were, but they didn't recognise those either. So there was this weird situation of sites with stone tools with no fossils and fossil sites with no stone tools. Um, and that only shifted in the, uh, in the 1880s. So the first discoveries were, would be pre-Darwin, I suppose. So when you... Yeah, just, just around then. I mean, that's kind of another weird thing. It's like this, this confluence of, of possibilities of, of technology um, in terms of mining, the Industrial Revolution, military activity as well. You know, that there was, there was a demand for all this quarrying and, and, and the military being in Gibraltar and, um, and the level of education of people as well. But also the notions of 
of ancient creatures and of evolution were just sort of all coming together at the same time. It's a real sort of, you know, a, a time space continuum. It was that moment when everything started to really, you know, blossom. Um, and that's why they were not recognized earlier, I think. Yeah, so, so we've got, um, you said that about what, 200 individuals? Um, Rough, somewhere like that. So, so we have a, a, a complete skeleton as a, a complete skeleton from different individuals or is it what's the best example um, there are some sites where we have pretty complete skeletons um one of the earliest uh, sites that was found actually in 1908 um it's a french site uh, la chapelle au son he's known as the old man um because he is quite old and lost teeth and things but his skeleton was pretty complete we have other skeletons uh, there's a there's a child um, from another french site um and in various other places there are relatively complete bodies and sometimes you might have like the top or or the, the bottom or something like that um, and in other sites yeah you just have a tooth but you can say a huge amount just from a few pieces um, and especially you know with we have massive technological advances now you know, if you have just one tooth, you can look at the morphology of the tooth, what shape it is. Um, you can say, oh, it's a Neanderthal because it has distinctive features. But then you can look at the growth development of that tooth. You can sort of see, does it seem to differ from the, the rate of development of, of living people, um, especially during childhood? You can look at the tiny scratches on that tooth um, and assess what they ate to some extent, um, what other tasks they use their mouth for. You can look at the preserved uh, dental calculus, so like, you know, the, the grot that you go on your teeth tartar. You can look at what is in there. There's preserved um, microfossils of plants and even DNA. And of course, you can then like analyse the, the teeth um, themselves uh, for DNA for the actual um, Neanderthals as well and all protein and other things. So even if you only have one tiny bit, the amount you can do with it is, you know, just incredible now. So we have a, a real, a very good understanding biomechanically, let's say, because we have so many skeletons. As you said, you can do anything from, almost from a tooth. You could work out. Yeah, that. The, the only caveat to that is that we don't have as many complete female skeletons, or at least that we can confidently identify as female, which is actually tricky in itself. Uh, weirdly, all of the uh, high coverage genomes that we have oh are female so they've balanced out you know there's more complete male skeletons but we have more um, very high quality genetic information for females so um yeah so that's kind of a strange balance well, while we're talking about that reconstruction at the end of your book there's a most beautiful passage where you write about if you could go and um, put your hands and touch a neanderthal today you could go back in time or bring one forward and, and look into their eyes and you'd recognize uh, something that's distinctly human could you uh, just give us a sketch of, of what, if, if a Neanderthal were to be in the room in front of us all now, what, what differences would there be? What similarities would they be? I think it would be striking how similar they are. But at the same time, you would definitely notice sort of they, they don't look quite as you, as you would sort of expect. So they're going to be on average bit shorter than most people I mean I'm quite short I'm only five foot one but average sort of male height would be five foot six a bit more um so you know you don't really get six foot tall Neanderthals you wouldn't have had six foot tall humans maybe at that time uh, well no there are some quite tall early homo sapiens slightly after the time of the Neanderthals sort of 30,000 something like that um and uh, even quite early a million years ago what we call homo agaster in Africa there's a really great adolescent skeleton that's quite complete and he was already pretty tall. Um, so on average, they definitely were shorter. Um, but what they, what they lack in height, they made up for in sort of bulk. And I think overall you would, you would be pretty impressed uh, <laughs> by seeing a Neanderthal. There's their bones, even their bones are thicker and um, the proportions of the limbs are slightly different, but you probably wouldn't notice that. But in terms of sort of the the muscularity and the the impressiveness of their bodies, definitely they had more flaring out uh, ribs, so they didn't have like a, a tucked in waist like we do. Um, so they sort of they just would have looked, you know, more barrel like um, in their chests. And the faces also, I mean, uh, you know, people focus on on the brow ridge, which definitely that's an interesting um, sort of feature. But also even in newborn babies, because we have 
amazingly we have skeletons of tiny tiny infant neanderthals and the question of how they get into the archaeological record is an interesting one but we can see even in like two week old babies that the form of their face already looks different the neanderthals had sort of a, a pulled forward front of their face because we have a lot of bone cells here that are absorbing sort of bone so our faces are tucked under relative to our common ancestor we've sort of gone a bit like pugs <laughs> and whereas neanderthals they have this more um, sort of bone growth sort of area which means that um, they would have had large noses and even the front of their faces pull forward but they don't have our chins so you know you can definitely feel a little bony thing inside your own chin um, and they wouldn't have had that it would have gone back more the shape of their head is also different we have quite a sort of tall ballooning head there's just more sort of it goes back and most of them had a little knobble at the back of their skull which we call the occipital bun which houses the visual system also they had just lots of small uh, differences um, because they've had their faces pulled forward slightly more they had a gap between the back of their jaw and and the last tooth so there's lots of tiny differences like that all over their body. But in terms of if you meet a Neanderthal and you see them, I think if you shake their hand, you, your hand's going to get quite crushed. <laughs> they had a massively strong grip. <laughs> yeah. You said um, there actually that, that um, I was going to ask about, you said that the visual system is in this region here. Hmm. And actually in your book, there's quite a lot of detail about the brain structure brain size yeah. um, but also the morphology the layout of the brain how do we know that i found it quite remarkable that we could speak with some confidence about that it's basically because the inside of your skull the, there's like you know the brain essentially leaves the imprint of itself on there your skull grows around it and you can make a cast of that i mean people used to make just like plaster cast or whatever but now we can basically do like you scan the skull and then you digitally just fill it in and suddenly you've got this brain on the screen. You can even see like where the arteries were across the surface of the brain. So it's just like this living thing. So you can immediately assess what the structural differences, the surface differences are. And you can sort of estimate how well different areas appear to be connected and the relative differences in size. So like, yes, the visual system at the back looks to be larger, but I think the, the nasal area the olfactory bulb which is what allows us you know to detect smells and things that was a bit smaller but in us we have this like very big forehead compared to neanderthals and um, there sort of goes back and ours is filled with an area that is I mean, it's very complicated but it's involved a lot of different things to do with speech and planning and complex mental processes but the problem is is that we don't know how all those functioned in life uh, what we do know about our brains is that, say, if somebody is injured or even if they just spend a lifetime doing a particular skill, the brain is quite plastic and it can shift and change and adapt. So although there is a large visual area at the back, it's been suggested that maybe that meant there was less room in the brain overall for complex processes of thought but we don't know if that is a real trade-off um, because we can't actually, you know, we don't have an MRI scan of a Neanderthal thinking, so we can't actually see how it was working. It's, it's based sort of on, on appearances, really. But it does appear from some experiments that have been done where this is all very new stuff, where people are sort of trying to grow Neanderthal brain cells, essentially. They do appear to be structurally different. But again, how that translates into actual lived behaviour is, is you know impossible to tell except we have the archaeology um, and that's what tells us what they actually did and what they were really capable of so that's the good balance for the anatomy i, I can't let that pass by the way by you said people are growing neanderthal brains <laughs> very very briefly comment on that that's from dna presumably um, yeah there is um there's active work that's being done by some labs basically they are putting neanderthalized genetic material into um sort of animal brain cells and, and just only growing like tiny amounts and just seeing if there is at a very basic stage if those cells develop differently um so i mean that's that's an area that people are interested in but you do you do run into sort of tricky ethical questions quite soon with that in terms of you know how big do you do you let these clumps of brain cells grow and 
yeah so that's that's an area that i think uh, yeah the the field of human origins is is, is needing to have a discussion about yeah. just on that actually i was going to go to questions later i should say to everyone you can you can type in the q a window but um lydia ebden has just related to that has asked a question about she says that dunbar's ratio of the neocortex size of the brain apparently suggests that neanderthals were cognitively adapted for group sizes of around 120 um, yeah. First of all, is that, and, and but then, then she asks if that's right. How can we predict that if we don't have an actual brain? But I think you answered that bit. But yeah, that's to do with like the the general structure of the brain related to the size of the body and everything like that. And if you compare it across primates, um, then yeah, on that measure, Neanderthals come out as pretty much the same as us. You would expect them to be able to sort of if that is a, a direct correlation which it generally appears to be um that they would be having complex social relations because that's really what that measure means it's like the complexity of social relations that you are able to, to process and keep track of in your in your mind and the implication is that neanderthals had similar social networks but really you know we've, we've got to remember that the contemporary early Homo sapiens groups who were around at the same time before 40,000, they don't appear in archaeological terms to have lived in bigger groups or sort of had massive social networks before 40,000. It's not clear. The only difference is that we have very few genomes or genetic samples from people in Europe older than 40,000, so from Homo sapiens people. But the ones that we do have show no evidence for any sort of inbreeding or even, you know, very small population sizes, which you can tell from the genetics. Whereas in contrast, the Neanderthals do seem to have a signature for that. In some cases, it does look like there is very close inbreeding, you know, like cousins or like a grandparent and a child but that's not all Neanderthal groups. Um, others, it looks like they had slightly bigger breeding populations. Um, but there's no sign of, of this sort of restricted population effect in early Homo sapiens people, which does point to some difference in how connected their groups were. So they probably had and lived every day in very tiny groups. They're hunter-gatherers. They're moving around an awful lot. The environment's the same but it's pointing to a connectedness between different groups that the diversity of their genetics is more than Neanderthals. So there does seem to be something different there, but that might not be to do with cognitive capacity. It might just be to do with sort of the, the differences in, in um, how Neanderthals were hunting perhaps, or, or the extent to which they, they used material culture to form bonds with different groups. So it's, it's complicated, but there does seem to be a difference. I have another question actually from Michael Hunter, which is related to, to the technology um, mm. and I suppose the wider culture of how ideas were passed on, which is which is a simple question. Could Neanderthals throw and hence attack from a distance? Yeah, it used to be thought based on the anatomy that they probably weren't very good at that. But the archaeology sort of throws a, throws, a, throws a question up literally in the form of a spear in that there is a site from Germany which is quite early. It's 330,000 years. This is early, well, we believe it's early Neanderthals. And there are multiple beautifully crafted wooden spears from this site. And they're long and they appear to be weighted in a similar way that javelins are, as in they are intended to be thrown. So that's one, one place where that seems to be the case. On the other hand, in a later site, um, dated around 120,000 years ago, again in Germany, um, but by this point the environment's totally different, it's a woodland world, and here we don't have the spear, but we have two fallow deer stags, which have been hunted and we can see it because there's massive holes in the bones and there's like really cool experiments that have been done, which basically prove that that is a spear injury, but they do not appear to have been thrown. Um, they appear to have been um, spears that were thrust sort of up and, and from below into um, the bodies of these animals. But that doesn't mean sort of that Neanderthals never threw. What it does suggest is that Neanderthals varied how they hunted depending on, the kind of environment they were living in because if you're in a massive 
deciduous forests like the forests we have today in Europe, um, you know, full of big oak and beech trees, trying to throw a javelin in that kind of environment is not going to do you very well. Whereas if you're um, in a more open environment, which is uh, like the one at the earlier site with these more javelin-like spears, then it makes a lot more sense that you would have a technology that allows you to, to throw and um, to stay away from really dangerous animals if you can at all avoid it. And it is interesting that there is, in the, in the later forested context, um, there is another site where we have a spear that seems to be associated with an elephant skeleton. Um, this spear is long, but it's thick. So it might be showing that there is a different kind of spear where you're still stabbing. It's like a giant pike, really, but you want to keep away from the animal. So it's like a finishing off spear or something. So there's, a, there's potential that Neanderthals had multiple different kinds of, of spears, depending on the environment and depending on the kind of hunting and potentially even the kind of animals that they were trying to take. That's, that's entirely possible. That's the, the understanding or speculating on understanding is a better word, isn't it? They're, they're, they're hunting. I can see how you can do that. You can see how they hunt by the artifacts that you find. But th- there are broader questions that are, so I suppose, deeper questions in the way you, you approach in the book. Uh, burial rituals, mm-hmm. I suppose the existence, I used the word before, but of a, of a culture in a sense, how they thought about the world. And so that's my question. Um, what do we know about how they would have, thoughts about the world well it's always tricky i mean whatever period in archaeology you're dealing with you know we don't have written texts we don't have people's voices Um, i mean the question of how reliable historical texts are is another thing but we don't have that so all we can base it on is looking at their bodies to see how they lived and looking at the stuff that they made and what they did and With Neanderthals, I think we've always suffered from a problem of wanting to make them a foil to us. You know, we've wanted them to be other to us for a long time. So there's always been a desire or a sort of even subconscious sort of trend to to wish to position them differently um, and to see difference in whatever there is. But I think that has changed a lot in the past sort of three decades or so as archaeological methods have have developed and we've basically got better at looking we have started to see much more um sort of similarity than than used to be the case and i think one of the interesting areas with that is you can look at hunting for you know i mean people we tend to think oh hunting it's just assistance it's just food and that but it gives you a window into sort of the complexity of how they viewed the world in material form. What we can see in how, in, in how they hunted is that they basically took the best of what was around them. They could handle big beasts, but they took small beasts too. But what you see everywhere is that they're completely focused on the quality of the, of the animals and the food that they're taking. And so they will choose the best animals from, from the herd and they will butcher the fattest ones they will focus on the most marrow rich parts of the skeleton as they butcher and then they'll take away the best bits and then when they use the the bones for for tool making as well they're focused on the different parts of the body they're very selective and so this understanding of of materials and an interesting quality you can then take that much more sophisticated understanding of how they they hunted and apply it to other things that they were doing as well you see the same thing in stone tools. All the stone tool technology points to a really similar sort of sophisticated level of, of, of ability to make tools and also to understand rock. And when you start to think about how they thought about the world, then you can begin to sort of say, OK, if we are looking for something that we might want to think about as symbolic or aesthetic, can we see a similar interest in materials that have nothing to do, as far as we can tell, with any functional purpose? And the answer is yes, there are. You can look, for example, at evidence for pigment use is a good one. So that's just natural minerals, basically, like people might know it as as ochre and things like this, you know, that that give colour. And although there are a number of different 
potential uses for those materials that that are functional like you can you can use ochre to to make like a sunblock basically if you sort of mix it with fat you can use it to treat animal hides um as, as part of sort of the waterproofing and the softening process and we know that they were really into their hide making but once you sort of are able to rule those activities out it leaves you with the question of well, why do you want colorful substances and what we do seem to be seeing by sort of amalgamating decades of, of really careful work where people are very conservative in their interpretations you put it all together and it does seem that in some times and places neanderthals were interested in in reds and oranges in pigments um, and also black colors with the black ones it's kind of interesting because some of those are manganese, which you do sometimes find naturally in caves. It's just a mineral that occurs. Um, and some work was done looking at the fact that it seems to potentially be something like a fire lighter, like a chemical accelerant to get your fire started. Um, so that's a possible use in some places. But in other places, they are using different kinds of black pigment that don't do that and that have no real sort of functional purpose. But across all the different sites where we find pigment, if you look um, at sort of the traces on these little lumps and, and nodules, you can see that in some they're scraping to get powder off, but in others it's sort of been rubbed on soft substances. And we don't know what that is. It might be, might be to do with animal hide working or it might be on skin, their own skin. We don't really know. So the pigments by themselves are intriguing, but unclear. But what you really need is like, you know, uh, one object that combines lots of strangeness together where you can say, okay, here is something that is a, an aesthetic sense. And we do have some examples of that. Um, one of the ones that I do like to talk about, and I, I talk about it in the book as a, as a really great sort of point in, in space that gives us this, this combination is a tiny little shell from an Italian site uh, called uh, Grotto Formane and that's about 55,000 years old so it's quite late for Neanderthals but it's interesting because it's a fossil shell so it's nothing to do with food collection there are other sites where they're collecting shells but it's to do with food um, but at this site it's a fossil it was probably collected about 100 kilometers away from that cave where it's been found so a Neanderthal had to come had to encounter a geological deposit and be presumably curious about what these shells are and take one. But even more than that, there was really amazing analysis done and it was shown that on the outside of this little fossil shell, there is red pigment, not inside it, just on the outside. And it appears to have sort of like a polished um, sort of luster in some areas to it as if it's been held onto or something like this. So this object it's come from a long way away it's got pigment on it which is unusual the pigment itself is from about 40 kilometers away so it brings together sort of all these unusual behaviors that seem to have no clear functional purpose and I mean Neanderthals were totally mobile you know they had to carry everything with them all the time so even though it's tiny somebody made a decision to carry that around with them and presumably lost it but if that was found in an early Homo sapiens site, there would be no question that it was interpreted as something socially meaningful, something with an aesthetic interest. Perhaps it was made to be seen or not, but it's there. And that object and others like that allow you to kind of look out at the other sites where you see sort of evidence for pigments on shells that are to do with food, for example, but there's also pigment on them and you start to see it all in a different light. So it's that sort of ability to to move between different realms of the, of the material, the archaeological evidence that we have to build up an argument where we can say, yes, there is some kind of interesting aesthetic sense that Neanderthals had and, and how they viewed the world um, in a way that's not very different to what we see in contemporary early Homo sapiens. I've got a ton of questions, actually. <laughs> There's a very quick one, which is... Um... The, from from NY Minute or Minute, which is, um, is, is there any evidence of them using fire to cook? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, loads. Roasting meat's not actually like the most efficient way to cook it. You can, boiling is better. And it does, there is some evidence that they did boil things. But they're definitely, I mean, they, they could control fire. Um, I think they could 
produce fire, no problem. Some people dispute that, but I think the evidence is pretty good. And yeah, certainly they were not everywhere necessarily, but certainly they were able to cook food for sure. Yeah. And then from Dustin uh, Seal, which we've touched on, but is there any evidence around whether they had any form of religion or at least beliefs about afterlife? I suppose it relates back to what I mentioned. Yeah, I wouldn't say that there's any evidence for like a formal spiritual like understanding. I mean, that's incredibly hard to see with the evidence that, that we have. What I would say is that there looks to be pretty solid and growing evidence that they were interested in the dead. So there's been, you know, decades of of debate over, oh, did they bury their dead? Because that's how we think treating the dead should be done now. But if you look at what they actually were doing, there are some cases where it does look as if there is a body that was in some kind of pit, whether it was natural or not. But there's also a ton of other stuff. There are a lot of complete or unmessed around with skeletons, more, many more than you would see in sort of animal dens of, of a similar period. It's just a phenomenon that is there. And especially with like newborn babies, some of those are really complete. And it's very hard to explain how that happens without it being covered you know people have said oh well, maybe they just froze or you know and that was why predators didn't come and scavenge them but that in that case you would expect to see more frozen animals as well and you, you just don't so there's something going on with deposition of whole bodies not laid out straight in a grave like we would imagine but there is something happening but also there's this whole other thing that we've only really recently sort of recognized which is that Neanderthals seem in some places to have been processing bodies, so basically butchering them. There is some evidence that they were eating them, but it's not always entirely clear. Like in some places we have literal tooth marks um, and burning on the bones. And generally the bodies are very processed, like they're actually smashing the bones for marrow, just like they do with animals. But if you look at the, the detail, in some places it looks as if they are more intensively taking those bodies apart or there's more focus on the skull and and like the the percentage of cut marks is greater than in the animals in the site so there are hints that there's something else happening and for me I think that that's sort of you know begging the question of us to to be a bit more imaginative and to look at what people all over the world do and have done with the dead there is a massive diversity in what people do with the bodies of the dead as a means of processing the massive emotional trauma that happens when somebody's lost and and everything that we see about neanderthals everything we know about primates and apes tells us that neanderthals were living in groups with very close emotional bonds and extremely um sort of social just like us and 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 hunter gathering communities have been for for tens of millennia so when somebody dies especially in an unexpected way it's a it's a rupture you know it's a massive thing and we can look at what happens in um, chimpanzee and bonobo so pygmy chimpanzee um societies and it's just huge they are obsessed with the body they'll stay with it for hours they're really into touching it and doing things so I understand that there are arguments that the cannibalism or the body processing is to do with people starving, basically the adults being starved, but there's not great evidence for that. Most of the time they had a lot of animals. We can see they are hunting animals around at the same time. So I think it's more to do with a, a response that if you are, if you deal with animal bodies all the time and what you do with animal bodies is you take them apart and consume them. Well, that is potentially a way of managing grief um, that we would we would sort of see. Um, I don't know if you know there was the same physical expression of grief, but there is clearly an interest in bodies. So that's probably the furthest that I would say in terms of any kind of religious interest in the dead. But what they were doing in terms of aesthetics and marking bones as well. There is there's evidence that they were marking animal bones sometimes in in sort of sequences of little marks and um, there's a one neanderthal skull that's marked like that and then there's also a really strange site in france where they've made huge rings of stalagmites 
nobody knows what's going on with that. That's a very recent um, discovery. And that is really very strange. It's nearly, you know, it's not far off architecture, how that's put together, all, all these pieces of stalagmite are stacked and things. So that probably for me is, is the closest that I would come to talking about any kind of spiritual thing. But I wouldn't want to use that word. I guess it would be more like a, a, an urge to create something, but we don't know why. I, I just say to Zara, you've asked two questions now, and I'll ask one of your questions in a minute. But there was, just related to that, there's one from Alexa Robinson about the, the paintings. I'll pronounce it wrong, but the Cueva de los Aviones. Aviones, yeah. Um, is there any evidence that those paintings are, are they considered aesthetic or for a more practical reason? There's also another question actually from Fiona Power, did Neanderthals make cave art, which you've, you've touched on there. Yeah, um, there was a really recent study that has found some caves in Iberia, so and three sites, where the calcite deposits either over some red pigment or next to it were dated and those dates came out for um, some of them as over 40,000, over 50,000, over 60,000. So as far as we are aware, it's only Neanderthals in Iberia at that time, which implies that they're responsible. However, there's the handprint, is that the case? Yeah, there's, there's a hand negative. Um, the problem is, is that the difficulty of dating that material is one issue because if you have like a, a layer of calcite that's that's very flat and it's not been sort of exposed um to to the cave and no water has gone over it and stuff that's one thing but when you have sort of like bobbly layers of calcite and you're not quite sure if the the calcite was ever sort of exposed and it, it can affect the dating basically so there are definite concerns from some uh, other dating specialists as to whether those dates are reliable or not and I think people would like to see reproduction of those results because within those caves they are really anomalous the caves themselves have a load of other red pigment and it fits stylistically what we expect for much later homo sapiens people and um, you know just the normal cave painting it's an intriguing idea that there may be a layer beneath the upper paleolithic art that is older I'm not opposed to the idea. I would like to see the dating better sort of shown. But in a sense, you don't really need that because what we see from the pigment use, but also then what I said in terms of that there are several sites where we have sort of a clear interest in making marks on bones. It's not conceptually that different. What I would, I guess, be amazed to see is that they were responsible for representational art. Like if there was, you know, a, a clearly shown with, with no worries or quibbles about dating or anything, and it was a painting of an animal, I think that would be absolutely mind-blowing for all Neanderthal specialists. I think wherever you stand on the aesthetic debate, I think that would be pretty amazing. But, I mean, the notion that they might make a handprint that's possible it's interesting they saw their own handprints we have sites where we have footprints and even a handprint actually from a, a french site um, it's it's an ancient dune area from although the sea had receded um, they were living on the sand dunes and it's it's a child's handprint just in the sand it's just perfect mm. um so they they would have known that as a symbol of their own bodies but but did they then have an interest in creating that symbol somewhere else i don't know zara's question which is uh, about because we overlapped, we, we're coming towards the end, I suppose. So there is, of course, I think everyone knows that the, there is a, a, a Neanderthal DNA in all of us, yeah. <laughs> which is the way you, one of the ways you end the book, and it's, it's wonderfully a wonderful notion. But um, just before we talk about that specifically, Zara asked whether there's evidence of cultural or technological exchange between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, given that they lived at the same time, as well as the other exchange we're going to talk about in a minute. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the question. If, you, if, if you're making babies, what else are you making together? Um, for me, at the moment, most of the DNA evidence that we have in terms of uh, saying when these interbreeding encounters took place, they're pretty old. You know, they're 55,000 years or older. 
the only evidence that we clearly have for late interactions um, comes from a Romanian jawbone of a homo sapiens, what we believe is a homo sapiens person. And their DNA appears to show that they had a Neanderthal ancestor within something like four to six generations, which is really, you know, it's like the time between us and when Neanderthals were first found, it's very recent. So that would imply that if that is correctly dated, that there was very late interbreeding, around 40,000-ish. But in terms of evidence for cultural contact, that is a really fraught question. The earliest that we know Homo sapiens people were entering into Europe is only sort of 40, 41, 42-ish, which is around the time the Neanderthals disappear, obviously. There are some, what I call in the book, sort of intermediate cultures, literally because they are found in between in the layers. We have the Upper Paleolithic, so that's the classic Homo sapiens uh, cultures. Then we have these other things. Then we have the last Neanderthal-like cultures. And so the question is, who made this thing in the middle? But also, what does it look like? And for a long time, it appeared to also be culturally intermediate. It seemed to have, like that. I'm saying it, there's different versions of it in France, in Italy, in different regions. It seemed to have some things that looked a bit like the Neanderthal way of doing things, Neanderthal technology, and some things that looked as if they might be like later Upper Paleolithic people, how they did stuff. So it appeared like it really was a mix, like a hybrid culture. The problem is, is that many of those sites were dug a long time ago and there is evidence that there was mixing of layers. It's not entirely sort of, you know, completely pucker in terms of being undisturbed. The sites where there is evidence, genetic evidence, that there was uh, Neanderthal bones in those intermediate layers. There's only two sites with that, and they are some of these problematic ones. The sites that have been more recently excavated in clean contexts where there's no evidence at all of mixing, those intermediate cultures that come between the Neanderthals and the later stuff, they do not look like Neanderthals in cultural terms. They don't have any of those sort of more um, more ancient uh, technological sort of characters about them. So for me, at the moment, it's not looking like we have any clear cultural hybrids at all. And in a way, that kind of matches the genetics because although we have, you know, more and more cases of fossils where we can say oh yes this is pointing to some interbreeding happening at this time in the past or this time or really old what we don't really see evidence for is like a full-on assimilation in genetic terms of you know that we totally absorb them um, i don't think that's what we see so i think the encounters if they happened um regularly or sorry and i say that the wrong way i don't think they happened regularly in terms of being frequent i think they did happen regularly through time but that probably means that there was no real context for groups living together, which is what you really would need for like a proper cultural hybrid. So, so there's that, there, that what we call, well, we, we, we have Neanderthal DNA in each of us now, but that you say that's coming from occasional encounters. So we didn't live. Yes. On yeah. And, and I mean, yeah, I think that's what it is. It doesn't look like overall that there was like entire, populations being absorbed by homo sapiens it doesn't really look like that and also we can't see in any of the late neanderthal genetic samples we have there's no evidence for our genetic material coming in late on so that's a strange um, thing that might just be to do with sample numbers but but it's what's an interesting question is yeah who did who did the hybrid babies live with who did they stay with um, and it may be that it tended to be more that they stayed with us but strangely the the source population for the neanderthal dna in living people we haven't actually found sort of the fossil population for that we, we know it looks a bit different to all of the neanderthals that we've sampled so far so that's an interesting question as to saying where did that happen in geographic terms as well well i think we're just about out of time um i i'm just looking if there's any more just a very quick one from peter roper that just come in which is is there a the, well the question is is there a manifestation of neanderthal dna in the appearance of people living today 
There is some hint of that if we look at particular things to do with sort of the the shape of the head. I think there's been hints of that, but it's difficult because you know we we're still getting to grips with exactly how our own genetic recipe works, and and it's it's a complex process, and it's it's sort of impacted by a lot of different environmental factors too. But there are um, possibilities that um, uh, some of the things that that gross sort of skull structure and things might be impacted but it's going to be expressed differently in different people because of their own um sort of genetic uh, character and also we think that although there's quite a lot of the neanderthal genome in existence it's not the same material between different living populations of people they have different bits of it as well hmm. so i think yeah to, to to summarise then, to bring this to a close, um, I was thinking of the last question. And, um, you know, we, we've talked a bit, you, you've said really that the question that's on everybody's mind often, which is why did they disappear? And the answer is roughly we don't know, I suppose, isn't it? So, <laughs> but, uh, I, so I thought I might ask you what, you've partly answered it. What, what, what would you really like to know? You, you did say about, about the art, you'd love to see representational art. I'd like to know, yeah. I'd like to know about that. Um, I, I suppose the, the, the way I want to frame it is one of the things I, I liked about your book is you framed it as a, as a culture, almost, you, you almost referred to it as a, 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 a civilization that spanned this vast geographical area. So I, I suppose maybe to summarize, how do, you, how do you characterize them? Just a very brief characterization. Um, and also that, that question about what would, be, what would be wonderful to find out about them. I think I guess I would I would characterize them I'd say that they were not a civilization you know like we we t- I talked the whole time oh the Neanderthals this the Neanderthals that but they were so diverse because they lived across a huge area and through a massive span of time so I think people should remember that Neanderthals in Wales are not going to have the same life experience as Neanderthals in Palestine or in Central Asia or in Siberia. And all those different groups also would have experienced things massively differently because they lived through multiple cycles of climate change. So I think wherever they are and whatever the environment's like for them, what we do tend to see is that they are, they are really successful at what they're doing you know, um, the question of sort of were we more successful or not? Well, you know, quite a lot of the very early Homo sapiens lineages genetically are pretty much extinct. So, you know, that the question of how successful we are is an open one. But in terms of them, they they did they were flexible. You know, they were adaptable. They were flexible. They saw what was around them and they they took the best and they were yeah i think they were they were skillful and they were completely living full hunter-gatherer lives you know in in that sense so i think that's how i would characterize them that they were very successful in their world what would i like to to find well sort of easily i would like to have a frozen the outside body you know like people have probably heard of the Ertzi, the ice man from the alps and um, that like fired my imagination as a child you know with archaeology i remember that find and what we know we're missing with neanderthals and we get these hints with like the wooden spears and other stuff i've not even talked about you know there's wooden platters from a site in spain and and birch tar hafted objects we know there was this massive sort of realm of organic technologies and i would love to sort of see what did the average neanderthal just carry around with them what did they have on them you know what was their their clothing like did they have pockets (laughs) you know what did they have in their bag did they have bags you know so (laughs) that kind of thing i would like a permafrost neanderthal please (laughs) i suppose i suppose there is a good chance that there are such bodies around well that is yes i mean you know, the, the reason why we have all these bodies of, of Pleistocene, you know, lion cubs and wolves and bears, why they're all emerging, the reason why is is awful reason because of the climate breakdown. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you can't help but wonder um, if there isn't something going to turn up somewhere in Siberia um, at some point. It's, okay. it's, it's a possibility. <laughs> Yeah, well, look, I mean, I, I, I could talk forever, but we've gone over already. So it's just a real pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone for, for listening. I noticed yeah, thank you. You, all, you all stayed for the whole day. So you must have been interested. Um, 
if you haven't got the book to buy the book because it's terrific so uh, <laughs> but thank, thank you thank you rebecca that's thanks very much everyone This week's show starred Rebecca Rag Sykes and was presented by Brian Cox. It was produced by Dana Outcult and edited by John Doughty. Our live stream programme this autumn will take you from the depths of the human psyche to the edge of a black hole. So, as ever, if you enjoyed this week's podcast, I would urge you to visit us at howtoacademy.com where you'll find out more about who we've got coming up. You'll also find our archive of evergreen science podcasts with guests including Marcus de Sotoy, Brian Green and Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.